Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Our uh, email address, of course, is available both on and off hours, so feel free to take advantage of that at any time. If you would like to join us not only off the air, but also on, our website is Calvary, that's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. And if you join us there under the Watch Live tab, it'll be in a purple bar at the top of the screen. You'll be directed to where we will be broadcasting from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If you want to get proper spelling for that email address or take advantage of the previous broadcast that will be streaming there as well, feel free to join us. If you prefer social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, Note if we are not streaming and it's not informed as to why, being a technical malfunction, for example, uh, we've just been kicked off for something we've said that the higher-ups don't like, then we will still be able to broadcast on our website. So feel free to join us there if you can. And those listening on radio, well, the oldies are the goodies. They won't take us down yet there either. So feel free to send us your Bible questions. As long as they are sincere, they are welcome. The three standards are, of course, sincere, Bible, and question. As long as they fit that description, we'll be happy to address them for the time we've set aside. And speaking of setting aside, uh, we don't want to go into this without prayer. So Peter, can you get us started? And we will start. Yeah, absolutely. Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful for the work that you're doing in our lives. We ask that this time would be given to you, that we'd be able to focus in on you and your word, that the answers that me and Sean give would be reflective of your truth, and that those who are listening would be benefited by it in their relationship with you and as well as their their confidence in sharing your word with others. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. It is true. All right, so to start us off and to give all of you time to send us your questions, hopefully think through to phrase them in the form of questions, um, we oftentimes hear about this issue that's mostly cast off to the side as a sinful one and obviously will clarify that it goes a lot more into excess or a lack of self-control which is a spoiler alert for the answer but the uh, (laughs) question is is gluttony a sin Mm -hmm. Uh, when people obviously are either sensitive about their weight or have other biological problems it's obviously something that's not cut and dry someone can be gluttonous and skinny right it's always a reflection of and like any sin a lack of reflection of the character of god so would gluttony would consumption of anything not necessarily food to excess be sinful and why yeah no uh interesting question one that kind of just came to me today the idea there is some people would say when to the question of is gluttony a sin they would they would say, of course, of course it's a sin. 
But they wouldn't really know how to explain that one. The reason why is because gluttony is a part of what we traditionally call the seven deadly sins. Now, what most people don't understand is that seven deadly sins aren't in the Bible. Right? No, there is there no, are seven deadly sins, <laughs> right. but it's in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, and there's actually six. He says lying twice. That's right. So. <laughs> Cheater. <No. Yeah. laughs> Just trying to fill that out. But at any rate, you know. Uh, the seven deadly sins are things that were developed in the Middle Ages to describe what the thinkers of that day, the theologians of that day, believed were the seven most deadly and uh, contravening sins in their relationship with God. Which is now, a traditional term referring to those that you couldn't just do penance for. That's right. That's right. And so there are certain aspects of the seven deadly sins that we could look at and say, well, there, there's some theological issues with their look at those sins, their view of the sins, looking at them as uh, holding them in higher regard. Uh, like Sean said, it had something to do with the penitent system of how you get, got basically cleansed from them. But at the same token, there's a lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of wisdom in looking at the seven deadly sins and why the various theologians believed that these sins were so harmful in their relationship with God. So you don't see them ever say like, oh, you know, obviously pride is the worst sin. You, uh, the theologians who said that pride was the queen of all vices, right? They, they gave biblical reasonings for that. You're not going to see a Bible passage that says that. Pride is the queen of all vices. And, you know, it is Sounds first biblical, and, but it's yeah, not. But it, but it isn't. You know, they, they use biblical reasoning to support their argumentation. Now, gluttony is a very interesting one. Gluttony and envy or lust were put side by side in the seven deadly sins for a reason. What the medieval theologians believed is that lust indicated any sin that you did within the heart. So when you lusted after a woman, that means that you longed to be with her, but you're not physically doing anything with her yet. You're not partaking of sexual sin yet. You're just in your mind and in your heart, you are longing for something. You are lusting after it. That was their view. Gluttony, on the other hand, was when you actually went and partook physically of that sin. So for instance, if I could be a lustful or envious person when it comes to money, but I'm not a glutton when it comes to money unless I'm actually like stealing it or uh, garnering a lot for myself and using it in inappropriate ways. In the same way, I could be lustful towards a woman, but I become gluttonous when I actually start having physical sex with her, right? So this would be a distinction between the two sins. So it didn't just encompass food, but that was a big aspect of it. So I'm not going to say that it didn't have anything to do with food, but I am saying that it, it was more than food. Beyond that, there wasn't just one way to be gluttonous in their way of thinking. This is why, uh, say, obesity isn't one of the seven deadly sins. So the idea wasn't being overweight is one of the seven deadly sins. It was a particular attitude towards eating. So let me put it this way. What they saw is that all of these physical desires that we have, they have a telos. They have a purpose to them. Part of being envious or gluttonous is taking these desires and putting them into a venue that would be inappropriate, utilizing a sinful type of demeanor. So, for instance, it's not that sex is bad, but if I take sex and I take it out of its proper abode, if I take it out of its proper place and I engage with it in a really inappropriate way, and the Bible defines what's inappropriate and what's appropriate when it comes to sexual desire, then I have moved into the sin of gluttony. And that's why food was so associated with the sin inside of their minds. Because when you have food, you have something that is pretty 
uh, widespread agreed upon that it's not sinful to eat. Right? <laughs> there, there are some Christians who would be like, is it sinful to have sex? And there, there's debate. I think it's a dumb debate because I think it's pretty settled within the scriptures. But there are Christians who have the debate about whether it's not to have sex, uh, whether or not it's right to have sex. Food is one that you can't really debate that. If you think that food is sinful, then you're either dead or you're just a <laughs> just a walking contradiction. But there's no way you could think that food is sinful. So because of that, what they're suggesting is that there's a way to approach food that would be sinful. That would be sinful. So again, this has nothing to do with what we would traditionally call physical health because it doesn't uh, address the issue of working out. Some people could actually argue that you could be gluttonous towards working out. In other words, you can do it to excess. But the three traditional ways that you could approach any particular thing, any particular thing that has a telos, that has a good godly purpose and pervert it and thus commit the sin of gluttony is too much, too soon, or too particular, right? So too much means very obvious. Too much is I'm going to a buffet and I'm just gorging myself until I can't take it anymore. Too soon means that I'm impulsive. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm eating too much, but when I want something, I have no capacity to wait. This is actually the biggest one that trips people up when it comes to sexual sin. It's not that they're, you know, when I'm usually counseling people who struggle with pornography or masturbation or something like that, it's not that the quantity is overblown, right, compared to what I would expect from someone who's sexually active in a marriage, but it's that they're too impetuous. They want it, and they want it in a way and at a time where it would be inappropriate, and they want it now. So they're willing to engage with it in a context that's sinful because they're not continent enough, they're not controlled enough to wait for a context that would be appropriate. That's the impetuousness of gluttony. And some people could do this with food, right? They are okay waiting and, and eating appropriately, but sometimes they're just impulsive. They get a hankering. <laughs> just like, man, I'm, I'm really jonesing for this. And then they just do something to their body that there's no coming back from. You know, just I'm really jonesing for something. Uh, you know, that, that happens to us sometimes. We get like an intense craving. Usually it happens to pregnant women. But, you know, we get an intense craving for something and we don't have enough self-control to say, no, I'm going to wait or I'm going to address this in a different way. Well, and not to be morbid, but this was a similar state that I'm still struggling with but found myself in once upon a time when I was dealing with self-harm. If I felt an emotion, that was just how I coped, how I distracted myself. And because there was no other option to me, I was just forced and defaulted into this self-destructive behavior. Mm. It was not necessarily the use of the knife or the cutting of my flesh, though I could turn to Leviticus and find clear problems with that. The reason why it was not God Right. And this is what the point we want to get to in all of this is because there was no self-control. There was no truth behind that decision. Mm -hmm. There was no wisdom in it. Right. No, absolutely. And so, you know, even if you're like, well, I'm in good shape and I, I do all these things and I exercise and I don't struggle. I can almost guarantee you struggle with that second one. <laughs> you know, maybe you're not very excessive in the things that you do, but that impetuousness, you know, when you get a desire, it's very hard for you to fight it. It's very hard for you to fight it off and you may give in to something that is very unhealthy. And you might do it sporadically, but doing it shows that you cannot be patient enough to wait for God to be able to, to carry you through it. So a good example would be Jesus in the wilderness, right? If he would have turned the stones to bread, that would have been the sin of gluttony. 
Now, you wouldn't have looked at skinny Jesus after he had been fasting for 40 days and be like, what a glutton. You know, and most of us wouldn't think that way, especially turning stones into bread, not turning them into, you know, Turkish delight or, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, a little Chronicles of Narnia throwback for you guys. But anyway, you know, like he's not turning it into something decadent. He would be just turning it into his necessary sustenance. But still, it would have been considered gluttony because God had told him to fast for a particular time. And so if Jesus were to eat at that point, it would have been gluttonous because it would have been too soon. It would be, I have an impulsive desire that I know God has told me not to satisfy in this context and at this time, and I'm going to do it anyway because I want it right now, right? That would be the idea of too soon. Too dainty is kind of funny. This would be snobs, right? So it's, it's Or not, children. Or children. Yeah. I only eat chicken tenders, right? <laughs> exactly. The pickiness. You know, it's, it's not that I'm overeating, but I only want what I want. And I want it the way I want it. So this is the teenager who comes home and opens all the cabinets, and even though they're overflowing with groceries, says, there's nothing to eat. You know, like, no, there's nothing that you want to eat. There, there is food, and if you're willing to sink down in humility a little bit and eat something that you wouldn't deign to touch regularly, you would be fine. You would be able to be satisfied. But you're too snobby to be able to partake of the food. And again, you could you could apply this in any particular way. You could apply this to... Um, you know, you can apply this to finance. You can apply this to sexual sin. Uh, there are some people who, uh, no joke, one of the reasons why pornography moves them is because they have become more attracted to that mode of satisfying their sexual desires that it even starts to impact their sexual desires with their spouse, right? They would rather uh, view porn. Now, it might sound kind of strange to some of you and because you don't struggle with it this way, but there are some people that they become very particular about this methodology of satisfying their sexual urges that they don't want to satisfy it in a context that would be appropriate. So, yeah, we can absolutely become attracted to things that very specifically and refuse all others, including the ones that would be honoring to God. So gluttony can go in this way. Now, I hope that that just kind of helps you guys look at it. Of God wants us to be very watchful very uh, introspective when it comes to how we're approaching various pleasures that he's provided for us on this world. It would be a lot easier for some Christians to just say, you know what, I'm going to abstain from all pleasures of this world. I'm going to live like a monk. I'm going to wear a burlap sack. I'm going to live on a mountaintop, and I'm just going to eat bread and water. And you would be avoiding the sin of gluttony, but you also wouldn't be training yourself in the virtue of continence and self-control. Right? So it's far better to learn how to control yourself in these avenues and to avoid and to fight the sin of gluttony as opposed to trying to avoid it altogether. Now, one other component that I'll throw over to you is some people would also argue, so this is just looking at food, the way that we eat and various other pleasures. But some people would also look at the sin of gluttony and say something to the effect of, well, doesn't, aren't our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit? And wouldn't God want us to treat our bodies correctly? Is there any biblical merit for that? Or is that just someone trying to uh, make something into a moral issue when it's really not? Well, I guess that's the tricky part because they're quoting a Bible passage, but it's not being applied properly. Instead of getting into the woods of, well, let's clarify the context of 1 Corinthians, we can have a narrow definition, but a broad application. That's another issue. What I think will help all of this fall in line is just a proper understanding, not necessarily even of gluttony, 
but what sin is. Hmm. If we look at the fruits of the Spirit, the natural uh, production of character that comes from fellowship with God, we see in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are those who argue those are all distinct traits, others that those are the natural traits that come from the first trait, that is love. I'm more inclined to the latter, but the conclusion is still the same. If we're put in a position where we're not those things, it's not a black and white application, but it is a definition. There is something and there is not that thing. If I'm asking the question, okay, is this proper stewardship of my body or am I taking care of myself in such a way where it reflects these godly principles? Well, principles in their proper place, all for it, God bless you. But let's ask the question, and it's not meant to be a slogan, but it has become one. Would Jesus reflect not this action, but this attitude? Hmm. How I do something, why I do something, that's what God cares about because from that, from the inside, those are the things that defile a man, not what goes into the body. That's how I would balance that out. And that was in the context of them not washing their hands properly when they eat. But the point being made was that. It's not about what you eat. It's not about what you do. There are good ways to do things that are very controversial and complicated. But if I bring God's heart to them, then I'll either naturally not do them (laughs) or I'll know the time and place for them. But that's the real issue. What is sin? It literally means to miss. The standard, the bullseye for the archery term is God's character. And if I want to meet that, then the tending to his temple will, of course, fall naturally in line with that if we're properly informed. But that's the other issue. I can quote parts of verses haphazardly to either dismiss or justify my lifestyle. I've done it. You've all done it. But the point being made is this. If I'm put in a position where I have to look at myself and say, I am gluttonous, the next thing that got us to do in your heart is, do I care? (laughs) To reference the Grinch, uh, Jim Carrey rendition. We're not naturally in a place where we would care about these things. We're just feeding ourselves until we're content. We're just doing things because it feels right to us. We have a way of doing things. We're living our lives the way we want to. What's wrong with that? That's the way of the world. And I like how John put it in 1 John 2, where he said, these things are the world and the world's passing away. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If you're self-aware enough to recognize those things in advance, then any behavior that stems out of them we should have like an internal filter that blocks out any justification for it. Mm-hmm. It may take time for us to mature a little. I'm waiting, <laughs> and I'm sure you are too, for God to do a work on the inside, but the external is a fruit of that, and that's what should encourage us to pray. If I am made aware of an area of sin in my life, perhaps not a familiar one like gluttony, then I should say, huh, Well, what then, not is the issue, but what is the solution? Not to sow to the flesh, but to sow to the spirit. Mm -hmm. And where does that start? Well, could start in the things that you eat. A dieting program can train self-control, but it's not the end result. It could be in a uh, more broadened horizon of your palate or a more structured approach towards the way you engage with things in life. But that's not the end result. Yeah, because another thing the medieval theologians pointed out is that you can use some other sins to fight other sins. So, for instance, someone can— Pride most of all. That's right. You could fight the sin of gluttony with the sin of vanity. 
right? You're so into your physical appearance that you begin to fight the sin of gluttony in order to look better. It doesn't honor God, but you're looking better, you know, or you can utilize, as you put it, pride. Maybe you feel like these things are beneath you or you're just uh, very arrogant about your appearance or arrogant about uh, just being healthy or, or something like that. And so you're giving into one sin to combat another. There's only one way to actually honor God in the way that we move through these things. And that's like what you said, Sean, that you're, you're looking at God and saying, I want to honor you. Uh, even as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. Right? So there is a way to honor God, even in the way that we eat. So these things are meant to convict us. Right? They're convicting for me. They're convicting for myself. I know they're convicting for you as well. Where when, you look at, when I look at my life and I, you know, some, when I talk about these things, stuff points out to me. You know, I, I definitely can be impulsive in the way that I eat. Right? So I, do, I, do, I don't really struggle too much with excess. But, yeah, when I want something, I want it right now. And I could definitely be that person that eats something very unhealthy for me. I have a lot of dietary issues and sometimes I could eat something that messes me up and that's on me, right? So I can I can definitely give into that sin for sure. And when I look at other areas of my life, can I be gluttonous when it comes to my finances? Can I be gluttonous when it comes to uh, my sexuality? Absolutely, all the above. So I want to be very introspective of self and I want to seek to honor God. I want to seek to move forward. And that means getting appropriate accountability in my life because these things go down deep into my heart. And that means really pursuing the Lord in my relationship with him and saying, God, I want to be satisfied in you and make you the reason why I'm seeking to get away from these things. I want to honor you in my body. I want to honor you in my flesh. And also, like I said, uh, you, you also were addressing it, uh, especially in, when you were talking about self-harm, but also in the varieties of passages that you spoke about, where, again, we can't be so critical of it and say, well, your body is the Holy Spirit, so if you do anything to harm your body, you are therefore hurting the Holy Spirit. You know, <laughs> you, could, you could take that really, like, really, really far. But to say, like, hey, God has given your, you, you your body, and there is a way to honor God in honoring your flesh, right? Keeping your flesh alive, right? It wouldn't be good for me to harm my flesh, right? To cut it or to burn flesh it. in a moral sense, but flesh in a material right. sense. Yeah, your material, physical body, uh, you know, to harm it in that way. Or, you know, some people, uh, again, they utilize other eating disorders. So they're not gluttonous, but they might be, you know, purging themselves, like throwing up or starving themselves in order to hurt the body, right? These things would all, we look at and say, yeah, you're not, you're not obese, but it's still harming the body in a really negative way. Uh, you know, and you think about some people use that as an example for like smoking and stuff like that. Why shouldn't I smoke? Because it does do harm to the body. Now we all do things that harm the body, but we shouldn't. <laughs> the fact that we the fact that we do it doesn't it, it excuse it. it. Right? We should be trying to as best as we can honoring God with the gift that He's given us in our bodies, and that includes taking care of them. So yeah, if this I know it's a sensitive topic for sure, but if it sparks something in you and you're like, wow, you know this this spoke to me. I want to try to get more healthy to honor God. I want to preserve my body. I want to learn self-control all because I want to learn how to be more like God in his character. That's my motivation, you know, because the body is going to die no matter what you do to it. You, know, like you, could, you could be as healthy as you want. It's still going to die if the Lord tarries. But that's, so that's not the prime reason why we do this. We do it. 
because we want to honor God. And I, I like how your dad put it last year when he got his cancer diagnosis, where something can hit you when you're healthy and your body still starts to fail of like, this is wrong. You know, <laughs> I followed the rules. You know, I'm healthy. You know, this shouldn't be happening to me. Well, that's not why we do it. We don't, we don't take care of the body because we want to be healthy. We take care of the body because we want to honor God. All right. Um, follow-up question on this on our website. Uh, clarify age and weight don't matter in a relationship with Christ. I don't know why age would be, but uh, man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. Why do we look at the outside, not the heart, as human beings? Well, let's, I guess, take that into three steps. First of all, um, the passage you mentioned regarding man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, that's also repeated in the book of Jeremiah, a very relevant one in our day and age, 17 and verse 10, I believe, where it notes that God alone searches the heart right. and knows the intents of the mind. Right. So if we're putting ourselves in a place where we ought to do something God could only do, that would make about as much sense as me saying, well, God created the heavens and the earth from nothing, and his church and his body really need to get their bara on. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for creating from nothing. It, it's obviously not going to happen. Uh, only God is eternal. So Christians, if you want to be more like God, you need to eliminate the fact you started existing. Now, there's certain things that only God can do, but if we are superficial, we are inconsistent, or we are... What would be a good word for this? A, a rude way of approaching relationships, um, not being particular, but being, I guess, unfair towards people, uh, holding inconsistent standards, making people feel ashamed of things that maybe they don't necessarily have full control over. When it comes to, and this is why I want to keep these in order to the individual ask the question, uh, age, people like, well, you're too old for me, or you're too heavy, or you're overweight, or you're too skinny, and this and that. And age should definitely come into, <laughs> into appropriation in a certain context. We want to be very careful. Yeah. We're talking about, uh, yeah, should you respect, let's say, statutory rape laws? Yes. Well, right? and that's why I'm trying to clarify yeah. this, because you say in a relationship with Christ, but none of these things would ever apply to your relationship right. with God. This right. is applying to human relationships. Relationships. Right. So if you're saying the, you know, I won't even go there, but the point being made is this. Yeah. When we keep these things in proper order, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. That was a statement made to Samuel when he was superficially judging the external appearances of David's brothers, but not their character. Now, note, right. it didn't, he didn't tell Samuel, you need to judge them based on their character. That'd be a good thing, but the way God was emphasizing it was the Jeremiah way that only God can do, right. which is why he was choosing the king, not right. Samuel. David was the one, not his brothers. And, and, and be careful with that, because some Christians have taken that to mean that physical attraction or physical appearance doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And that's not true either. The Bible does mention that certain people in the Bible are attractive. It mentions that Joseph was a very good-looking guy. And it does mention that David was a good-looking guy. He was just a little shorter. You know, like well, and a, there's various uh, yeah. ways that people view being attractive. I was going through Daniel today, and the... Uh, comeliness, the attractiveness that Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, was trying to achieve with them was to make them fat. Right. And what made it a miraculous situation is you don't usually do that by eating vegetables and drinking water. Right. But the point being made was this. In the ancient world, going all the way to the medieval period, right. if you were fat, you were considered a babe. 
not to be crass or anything, but yeah. that, because you it's, had, it was more centrally appealing. Because in that day, your day-to-day life, unless you were in royalty or in the military, was based entirely around what you were going to eat. Right. That was your entire life right. and your purpose. So if you had an excess of food and your body reflected that, that was a desirable trait. Right. It reflected status. So if Babylonian representatives like Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and uh, um, Hananiah were uh, being you know, port lead up. Yeah. It was when they would travel to other places. We're representative of Babylon. It's like they're Ooh, even good look there. How fat those guys are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to be with awesome. these guys. That was the yeah. idea. But if, on the other hand, we get superficial and say, "Oh, these unrealistic beauty standards." Hey, it cuts both ways. Six packs are not realistic. They're for teenagers and bodybuilders. <laughs> but if, on the other hand, we make that as an excuse for us, it's another whole issue. What we need to recognize, and there's another question that ties into this too. Nina wants to know. Is it wrong to be attracted to certain body types, skinny, strong, fat, muscle, etc., when it comes to marriage biblically? And I appreciate you specifying marital relationships, Nina, because right. that's and, better than what was talked about before. Yeah, so to, to build on what you're saying, when it comes to physical attractiveness, it, I'm attracted to my wife. She's very physically appealing to me. I really like the way that she looks. That's not the totality of why I'm with her. So when we say that someone is superficial, what they mean is they're taking one aspect of someone and they're using it to judge the whole person that's what's wrong so in other words i look at someone who is physically attractive and i say therefore they must be an amazing person in all these other areas right or i look at someone who's particularly eloquent or skilled in a particular craft like some people flock to people who are musicians or actors simply because they have a lot of wealth or they have a lot of status right these would all be a type of superficiality and shallowness that would be condemned by the bible now someone's status right someone's status or physical attraction they're a part of the package right so you can appreciate it as part of a package but if it's the only factor that you're looking at then that is that shallowness so for instance if my wife got into a horrible accident tomorrow that marred her if i was like well it's been real but you know you you've lost what was most important to me in this relationship everybody would rightfully condemn me and say that was very shallow that was very superficial that was very wrong my appreciativeness of her physical attraction is good but it cannot be the total reason as to why i'm attracted to her and it can't even be the primary reason that i'm attracted to her and by the way i could be attracted to other people physically i could say that's an attractive man i could look at some men and be like yeah it's a very good looking guy i don't want to be in a relationship with them but i can recognize that they are physically attractive uh, and i could recognize that there are physical attractive uh, traits by the way in different body types right there isn't one particular body type that encapsulates all of human beauty yeah um, like think in terms of what did the overweight status communicate it suggested that your society was prosperous that right. they had good lives in modern day physical fitness or uh, in other cases, people would look at long hair because that's hard to maintain. It shows right. good hygiene. If you have, uh, you know, um, not uh, fa- you pluck your uh, facial hair, that shows meticulousness for finer details. If you're right. well endowed, that shows good genetics, and these can be more biological and base. But the point being made is centered on this. If I want to know what matters most, if I'm wise in my choice for relationships, it certainly involves but doesn't end at appearance. Proverbs 31 and verse 30 says, uh, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And you can girls flip that on its head, hopefully, and say, well, 
what's going to be most important for me in a guy. It's a guy that points you and reminds you of Jesus. Right. Someone who has a working fear of God in their life. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean that they'll never, you know, do anything wrong. But if you purposely seek out someone you find unattractive that's just as foolish as someone saying i only am interested in looks because right. as the uh, old proverb says the looks don't last but the cooking does yeah and uh, going back to our sin of gluttony you can be too picky yeah. right you can be very particular about physical appearance so it's not just so you might be saying well it's not the only thing that i'm looking at but i'm looking at well sometimes people can actually take everything that i'm saying you know personality looks everything and they set such a high standard that nobody ever meets it. So they're not superficial in the sense that they're only fixating on one attribute and saying, I'm only looking for that to be maxed out. But the whole person that they're looking for, they're never going to find someone as kind and as appropriate. Uh, this one counselor put it in such a perfect way that I loved it, where he asked, uh, he asked one of his clients, what are you looking for in a pr- prospective spouse? And he starts listing it off, and it was basically like, you know, a, a, an astronaut who's also a multi-billionaire model, you know, like everything. And he's like, huh, what do you think someone, if this person existed, which they don't, but if this person did exist, what would their list look like? And do you think that you meet that? You know, like, so what he's trying to show this person is you've become too picky when it comes to prospective partners, and you don't know how to... Uh, see how much does this matter again it's not that it matter it doesn't matter at all but it should matter uh, in its appropriate amount so for instance if I was hanging out with my wife before we got married and she didn't hygiene at all she just never showered and she reeked would that affect my attractiveness to her yes right that's there's nothing shallow or wrong about that but if it affects me so much that I'm like, I'm not even going to talk to this person because, you know, yeah, she loves God and blah, blah, blah. But, but you know, she just smells. I can't, I can't get over that. No, you could, you could have a conversation about that if you're dating someone. Be like, hey, I would kind of like it if you took care of your, <laughs> you took care of your hygiene a little bit. But you can't base your, the entirety of your relationship upon it. Yeah, so it's, it's not explicitly forbidden within the scriptures, but it is one of those things that we would say it makes you morally shallow to base the totality of your relationship on something like that. Yeah, it's not wrong to have a type. Right. But if, on the other hand, your focus is, well, I hope they will meet my interests. No, Christian dating is two sentences. I need to grow up, and I need to be more like Jesus. That is how you be attractive. If Mm -hmm. everything else falls in line with that, then, well, you can tell why I'm still single. Another question, Nino wants to know, uh, why won't marriage and reproduction exist in the new heaven and earth? Uh, Can't we have pleasure without creating more humans in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, again, like a question we answered, I think, last week regarding clothes in the new heaven and the new earth, what purpose would they serve if we were originally, you know, unashamed? And the point, I think, still stands. The answer to that, to be brief, was clothes will serve a new purpose, not to cover shame, but to reflect God's glory. If we were to look at the purpose of reproduction, of producing offsprings, that purpose is no longer there. If we say, well, but this form of intimacy is so personal to me, it's hardwired into my genes, I just can't imagine living without it. Well, welcome to America. But the point being made is this. If I'm looking at the heavenly perspective with earthly priorities, impulses, and instincts, I'm thinking in terms of two different existences. Mm. If, on the other hand, I... Let's just uh, make this a little bit more broad. If I'm um, in a 
state in the United States where there's reasonable housing and there's uh, good prices on food and stuff, and I go to a state where there's poor administration and those prices are higher, I wouldn't be able to budget myself the exact same way, but both involve money, right? Now, let's take a step back and go to this new country where they don't have finances. They are able to tell what you need and give it to you when and where you need it when you have it. So if I were to think, so how do I budget in that new country? You're missing the categories yeah. here. There's obviously ways we have to sort out where we are and when we are. If I'm in a single relationship or a marital relationship, how do I approach reproduction? How do I approach romance? But in the new heavens and the new earth, what is the focus of our relationship? It's with Jesus. And that's not achieved or, or established in intimacy through our sexuality. That's our very essence and being. Right. So if we're looking for something in the physical to be then fulfilled in the spiritual, I don't say it's the same thing. Yeah. I say, what is the purpose of both? And now that I'm in a whole new category, right. what is this foreshadowing that that ultimately is meant to be the permanent solution to it? Right. And, you know, just picking up on that, I, I, lo- I love how you worded it because for a while this passage did disturb me. I was like, you know what? I, I love my wife. I love I love my relationship with her. And that really disturbs me and disappoints me that that aspect of a relationship will not be present within heaven. Uh, but when I really stopped and thought about it, I was like, well, what does the sexual relationship accomplish on earth? Well, it's a type of physical intimacy that's really cool. You get to be very unified with your partner in that act. Uh, there's a type of exclusivity to it that's very neat. Uh, th- there's a deep amount of pleasure within it that's very cool. Well, in heaven, am I going to be more intimate with my wife or less intimate with my wife? I'm going to be more intimate. I mean, the, first of all, sin is not going to be separating us anymore, which is a huge bummer within our marriage right now. But also, we're going to know each other fully. We're going to have a relationship with one another that's absolutely perfect and flawless. We're going to be able to commune on a level that we can't right now that's really beautiful. And the specialness of the relationship will be maintained in heaven. It's not like when you go to heaven, you like God wipes your mind and you become just like all of us are one and we are all God and God is in us and we are in one another. No, no, no. When you're in heaven, you remain your individual self. And that means that the specialness of relationships that you've accumulated on the earth will be uh, preserved for heavenly spaces. That's why, by the way, the things you do on earth, that's one of the aspects of the things that we do on this earth will matter because when you invest in relationships, those relationships will continue in heaven. So if I am investing in my relationship with my dad or my mom or my friends or my brother, my sisters, once we go to heaven, we're still going to have those relationships. We're going to be able to pick up where we left off, yet without the burden of sin and all the pain that we've caused one another throughout the course of this life. So my wife, who I'm loving right now, I'm still going to love her in heaven, and she will still be very special to me in heaven. Just that aspect of procreation and sexual intimacy will be gone from our relationship, but the relationship will be qualitatively better than anything that we experience here on this earth because of what God's doing. So because of that, do I know exactly how it's going to look in heaven? No. But because of my faith in what God's doing in our lives and because of the presence of God within heavenly spaces, I don't really worry about it anymore. I know that God is going to be faithful and that I'm going to be able to preserve a very special and intimate relationship with my spouse in heaven. And that is a great comfort to me. All right. So let us know if that helps you out, Nina. Um, 
We'll deal with this one off air. But going to the uh, questions we've received by email, uh, I guess we can deviate from the relationship topics a little bit. Um, (laughs) This question is from Jay, who wants to know if we discovered the true location of Solomon's temple before it was rebuilt, would it matter? Uh, I mean... Kind of, but not really. There, there are some exciting developments on that. So, for instance, as Christians, we do believe, as uh, the particular type of Christians that we are, uh, that we believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period, and we believe in a literal millennial kingdom. Because of that, if you read the book of Revelation, you read the, the, the prophets, what you realize is that there has to be a temple that's built. So the fact that there are these movements of Jews within Israel looking for the Temple Mount and looking for a way that they can build a temple without having to go to war with the Muslims and tear down the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, that's exciting to me because it points to the fact that God's return is more imminent than previously. That's very exciting. It's very encouraging. And if someone found it, someone was like, no, I I really did discover the the true Temple Mount, and it's not where the Dome of the Rock is, and it's not where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is. It's actually a little bit to the north or to the south. I'd be like, that's pretty cool. That that would excite me. Would it change my life? No. It would just be kind of like an interesting thing. I mean, I feel like every time I turn on the news, there's something new where I'm like, wow, like it seems like God is more imminent to returning than he was yesterday. <laughs> so it's like there are so many things to look at to suggest that Christ is near nearer to re- return than he's ever been. So uh, this is just one piece of the puzzle. And we have no affirmation, by the way, that this particular piece of the puzzle will be settled before we get raptured. It's very probable that the temple is going to be rebuilt after we are raptured very quickly after we're raptured, but uh, because of modern technology, you can erect a structure in a very short amount of time. So it's very likely and probable that the Temple Mount will be discovered and erected after the rapture of the church. Here's a very interesting question. This is from Kevin, who, uh, regarding the topic that was being discussed regarding heavenly relationships and Mm -hmm. how you see your wife, uh, what about divorced couples in heaven? Um, the bonds that you'll be having there, or deceased spouses in right. heaven, all those issues. Uh, what would be a biblical approach towards that? So a couple things. Uh, your relationships, as I said, the, that you invest in on this earth are going to matter in heavenly spaces. So once we go to heaven, if there is a relationship that is on the rocks, that is invariably a result of sin. Right. There, there is no such thing as a relationship that is on the rocks and in a destroyed or desecrated position that sin was not involved on some level. Nobody, nobody gets a divorce and they say, the reason why we're getting a divorce is because, you know what, they just love me like Christ. And everything about the marriage is perfect and, and we just love each other so immensely. But you know what, we're divorcing just because we choose to. Uh, the reason why you're divorcing, the reason why separation is happening, and, and again, there's a lot of nuance when I say sin. There's a lot of, I understand there's a lot of variations and variables to how people are sinning. But sin in some aspect, in some way, has occurred to break apart the marriage. It's destroyed the marriage in some irrevocable way, and that's why you guys are in the position that you're in. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm assuming that you mean two saved people are yeah. going through a divorce. Yeah. And so they are going to be in heaven. Is there going to be any awkwardness? Well, I think there's going to be disappointment, but I don't think there's going to be any awkwardness. In other words, once we get to heaven and God does purify us and we know him as we are fully known and we become like him, 
we're going to be able to see how petty and foolish the disagreements and the separations that we're experiencing on this earth really were. And we're going to be like, we're able to reconnect and have a relationship. But I, I do believe there will be a little bit of regret of like, why didn't we, why didn't we work this stuff out when we were on the earth? Uh, this is what Jesus means, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about going to the altar before the Lord. And he says, but if you have basically a disagreement or an issue with your brother, go solve that first and then go to God. Now, he's not saying that you can't go to church unless all your relationships are perfect. But what he is saying is that God's intent in your life is more important when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself, caring for the people around you, than doing particular religious servitude. So in other words, what would God care about me doing more? Let's say me and my wife got into a really bad fight on Sunday. Would God want me to go to church or would he want me to reconcile with my spouse? Um, now, sometimes it's good to get some air, you know, go out, get the word, and then you'll be retooled to go back and, and fix the relationship. But I'm not going to avoid reconciling myself to my wife and do some sort of a spiritual go. I'm going to go out and evangelize, honey. I know we're in a fight right now, but I'm going to go do something for the Lord. Uh, that's not correct. God would want me to work on my marriage to to solve that problem. So I think that there that what's going to be preserved when you go into heaven are the foundations of that relationship, but then all the things that cause that relationship to fracture and go away will be removed in heaven, and you'll be able to reconnect with that person. So there's not going to be awkwardness, but I do think there might be a little bit of, of shame of just like, man, why, why didn't we do this while we're on this earth? If you have the opportunity to make it right with someone right now, do it, right? Try your best, as Paul says, as long as it is up to you, live peaceably with all men. Uh, do everything you can to preserve that relationship. Now, I'm going to answer it in a little bit of a different way. What you might be asking is like, okay, well, what if you're married to somebody, you divorce them, and then you get married to somebody else, or you are married to somebody and your spouse dies and you marry somebody else? So this would kind of go to the specific Sadducee question. Yeah. And what Jesus is saying is like, because the sexual component is not going to be alive and well within heaven, you're not going to be married in that sense. So what I mean is that the relationships will still be special. When you go to heaven, let's say you, you lived faithfully with your wife for 40 years and then she unfortunately passed away, and then you married somebody else and you lived with her for an additional 10 or something like that. Uh, both women are going to be special to you, but that need for an exclusive sexual union won't be there anymore. You'll be able to have the relationships in their proper abode and see the specialness and look back and see like this really cool thing. And there won't be an awkwardness when your wives meet. <laughs> like, you know, like that's not going to exist. They're not going to be jealous or anything like that. They're going to see it for what it is. And there's going to be a specialness there for sure. And you base that off of Jesus's answer to their question. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Right. They're like the angels of heaven who that's are right. just geeked out about God. That's right. So yeah. note that point. Let us know if that helps you out, Yari. Uh, here's an email we received. This is regarding traditions. Um, this was sent to us around Easter time, uh, but regarding those festivities, obviously most of the Easter practices were centered rather around Lent rather than around anything biblical. Right. But does the fact that a group of Christians start a practice justify it? He makes a comparison to the Israelites that started practices that weren't righteous but were actually abominations. Can the same be said of unprescribed practices done by Christians? Uh, well, Jeffrey, thank you for the question. And I guess you have to ask the concern, 
or make the question, what about it are you objecting to that is or is not unbiblical? And then on that basis, can you be consistent with that? Obviously, we make the emphasis regarding Easter, regarding Christmas, regarding President's Day, for corn's sake. It's one man esteems one day above another, another man esteems every day alike. Let each be convinced in his own mind. If I'm honoring this day to the Lord, then the attitude is what justifies it, not the Christians doing it. That's what would be the first, I guess, eliminating factor because, well, the Jews did something, but it was bad. The Christians did something, but what if it's bad? Well, let's eliminate the participants and ask the motives. Is this with Christ in mind in an accurate and a consistent way? If I were to, say, try to... uh, Christianized Dila de los Muertos, that would be a problem. (laughs) But if, on the other hand, I were to literally take Pasher, (laughs) Passover, and say, well, we're going to fast, which is a biblical thing, uh, leading up to Easter, and then have this feast, and since uh, the only kind of meat that we can keep are eggs, that will be a part of the feast. Well, it's a fun tradition, and oh, well, how do we know when Passover is if we don't have, you know, these sophisticated calendars like they do in the Middle East? Well, they wait for the hairs to start showing up, and that was generally around spring when Passover was around. So note the point. If we're in a place to judge what we're doing and why, uh, if you start, you know, going out binge drinking, going on benders and stuff to celebrate some sort of uh, significant Christian figure, hopefully they would be the first to object. But if, on the other hand, we were to say, well, a Christian does it, does that settle it? No, not at all. We just need to ask what we're doing and why. And, again, that's the emphasis that we would put on any tradition or practice. Right, so it's it's not compulsory. So, in other words, there's nothing that we're saying that you you have to celebrate Easter. We're just saying that if you want to celebrate Easter, look at the traditions that you're doing and ask yourself this question, are they sinful, and can I in good conscience do this unto the Lord? If the answer is yes, then... Go for it. Yep. And again, Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, Paul the Apostle made a point saying that we should hold fast to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our letter. So the traditions that he has in mind, the ones that were written in Scripture, past tense, are the ones that we're still regarding today, not as the only things we can do, but the framework by which we ought to do things. If my practices, my traditions violate those things, I need to check my heart as well as my actions. If the attitude is wrong, but the actions are fine, I'm still at fault because I'm not celebrating this is under the Lord. But the fact that Christians are Jews do something, I don't think that's the issue. So let us know if that helps. Sorry for the late reply. Uh, Here's another email question. This is from Casey, who wants to know what is the biblical definition of abuse hmm. uh, in any relationship, uh, physical, emotional, etc. But when they're in an abusive relationship, but they want to keep living in that relationship, are they being disobedient to God or are they setting themselves up for trouble? Not asking for themselves personally, but uh, the individual wants to know. Yeah, very good question. Very, very good question. There is no biblical definition for abuse. So what we work out within uh, a biblical framework, so as a biblical counselor, if I'm trying to figure out if there is abuse happening within the relationship, the reason why I'm trying to figure that out is because abuse, although uh, abuse is a sin, it's a particular type of sin 
that would necessitate particular movements within the relationship. So I, I don't expect when I'm sitting down and counsel people, I don't expect that there's no sin within the relationship. Of course there's going to be. The questions I have to discern as a pastor and as a counselor is what kind of sin is present within the marriage and therefore how do we move forward? If it's a certain level of sin, my recommendations are going to be a little bit more stern. If it's so, for instance, if I do recognize abuse within the marriage, then I'm going to, depending on what kind of abuse is going on, I might call the police. Uh, if there's physical abuse happening, if there's sexual abuse happening within the relationship, I'm probably going to call the police. I'm most likely going to call the police. You're legally and obligated to. I'm legally to. <laughs> obligated to, and I'm going to report that person, and the law is going to deal with them as it should. Uh, if there is uh, flavors of abuse within it, meaning there's certain types of emotional abuse or something like that, or or lighter amounts of abuse where, let's say, the relationship's gotten very toxic and it's gotten to the point where, let's say, they're shoving or they're throwing things at one another. I might recommend a separation while there's some serious looks at, at their anger and the way they express it and they start doing some very serious work on those aspects of their life. But... I'm not going to go as far as to call the police. So, so these questions are very good to answer, and they're very good to understand. And unfortunately, I don't have enough time to get into it. If I were to give you a definition of what comprises abuse within a relationship, there are so many different ways that it could be expressed that it would take me a very, very long time. So let me try to give you as broad a definition as I can without having that definition be utilized as license for someone to call every little thing abuse, because I've seen that happen as well. People accusing their partner of abuse when abuse hasn't actually occurred, and they're using that strong and loaded term in order to justify behaviors such as separation and divorce when it's actually not justified. So the broadest way that I can give a definition of abuse is it's something that must be physically and by the way, uh, the, there has to be a severity to it, physically or psychologically damaging to the person that you are with, right? Now, that could either be a severity of behavior or a longevity of behavior. So let me give you an example of this. Um, I was counseling this one couple where the husband continuously threatened to divorce the wife. Now, does that happen in marriage? Oh, yeah, that happens. Would I normally categorize that as abuse? No. However, when you do it like him, where he's threatening divorce every week, multiple times throughout the week, and he's utilizing that as a way to manipulate his wife and to get her wrapped around his finger so that he can force her to do things she doesn't want to do, when that kind of behavior is happening, I bump it up to abuse because it's having a very severe psychological effect on her where there's no stability in the marriage. The kids are affected by it because there's no stability with their dad. He's threatening to walk out every other week. They don't know what his mood's going to be. They don't have any stability in the relationship with him. It's having an effect on her compromising her morals and her values because she's so desperately wanting to keep him there because he's literally mentally conditioning her to put up with really inappropriate behavior over the threat of abandonment, right? So that particular behavior, normally I wouldn't categorize it as abuse, but because of the predictable psychological effects that it's having and the severity of the behavior, I would categorize it as abuse. Now, that definition, someone might say, well, okay, that seems very subjective. And in a way it is, and in a way it isn't. So in other words, does, do I take into account somebody's psychological effect on certain behavior? Yes, I do. 
So certain people might not take behavior as being abusive. So let's say I'm dealing with someone who grew up in a household that was just incredibly volatile. And because of that incredible volatility, they built up some thick skin, shall we say. And so when they fight with their partner, and both of them did this, so uh, if when they fight with their partner, they do throw uh, across some not-so-savory language at one another, let's say. Uh, but because they both do it and because both of them are not very moved by it, while I would say it's dysfunctional and toxic, I wouldn't categorize it as abusive. However, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't come from a background like that and they're very sensitive and their partner is throwing these very vicious attacks at them verbally and it's affecting them greatly, then I would start maybe looking at it as an abusive thing. However, it is not solely a psychological thing. So, for instance, if someone is saying like, well, it's causing me distress when you behave this way. When you, when you come home late, it causes me distress. Just because you're distressed by it doesn't necessitate abuse. Maybe you're very sensitive towards these things, and it's actually not even bad. You're just being overly sensitive to it. So like I said, I, I, I hope that's not a frustrating answer to you. I'm just saying as a counselor, I have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. I think it's dangerous when we try to give very large and blanket definitions for loaded words like this, I think we could we need to try to be a little bit more precise in the way that we communicate. We want to avoid the what ifs and right. go towards the what is, right. what is happening. Exactly. Uh, two more questions I think we can clock out in the last minute. Uh, this is on our website. Who wants to know, will someone's dad still be called their dad in heaven or they still refer to them by their familial names? And he gives the example as well of themselves. Now. I think the best way to approach, it's a great question. The best way to approach this is the first person we see in a glorified state, and that is our Lord. In the new Jerusalem, obviously he has a name written that no one knows except himself. We have prophecies in Jeremiah saying that in the new king, uh, the millennial kingdom, rather, he'll be called the Lord our righteousness rather than our, the Lord our savior. That's what Jesus means. But it won't mean that he's any less our savior. So if I then apply that back and say, well, your biological father won't cease to be your biological father, nor the name he was given on this earth, but he'll have new names. It would basically just be a matter of preference at that point. You could still relate to him as your father, but that other relationship, of course, will be overshadowed by Jesus. That's how I would deal with that. It's not a direct um, issue, but it is one I'd come to that position on. I'd say, yes, you could still call them your dad. And finally, Monica wants to know if we'll be celebrating feast days, holy days, and weeks in heaven. In the millennial kingdom, yes, read Ezekiel 40 through 42. In the new creation, we aren't told. I'll leave it that. <laughs> God bless you guys. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.